Welcome to the Health Leader Forge, a joint production between the University of New Hampshire and the Northern New England Association of Healthcare Executives. My name is Mark Bonica, and I am an assistant professor in the University of New Hampshire's Department of Health Management and Policy. Today's guest is Lieutenant Colonel Amy Thompson, the division surgeon for the 101st Airborne Division. The 101st Airborne Division is one of the Army's most storied units, having played critical roles during World War II on D-Day, the Battle of the Bulge, and other history-changing moments. The 101st is currently located at Fort Campbell, Kentucky, but its units are deployed all around the world. Lieutenant Colonel Thompson is a board-certified pediatrician with a fellowship in adolescent medicine focused on young adults. As she notes in the podcast, more than half of the Army is under the age of 25, so her specialty is actually perfect for her mission of taking care of soldiers. As you listen to Lieutenant Colonel Thompson's story, I think you'll be struck by the level of commitment she has demonstrated to her mission of taking care of soldiers, repeatedly volunteering to serve in challenging and dangerous environments when she could easily choose to remain in a hospital or a clinic. In the podcast, the themes of mission, service, and endurance repeat, and we conclude with a discussion of servant leadership. I hope you enjoy listening to Lieutenant Colonel Thompson's story, and if you find it valuable, won't you leave us feedback on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or wherever you may be accessing this recording. It helps other people discover us. Thanks for listening, and here is Lieutenant Colonel Amy Thompson. Welcome to the podcast, Amy. Thank you. Thanks for having me. What was it that drew you to medicine and and made you want to pursue that field? I think it probably started in like junior high, high school, probably through different influences. I think my parents were an influence, even though they were both school teachers. My dad was in the army. Both my mom and dad uh, taught school for close to 35, 40 years. Um, So just seeing them kind of live like a, a service oriented lifestyle. Uh, We also grew up going to like Catholic church and had lots of different like role models throughout the school years. I think as, as I was young, you know, again, like uh, steering me towards a service oriented profession. And then I I also had a doctor growing up that was uh, in mission fields, like Mm -hmm. missionary medicine on the side Mm -hmm. where he would. And I remember he had this book in his office of all these pictures where he was treating cleft palates, cleft lips of kids overseas just for free. And so I think just through that, definitely, I remember sparked my interest that he could like make a difference in so many people's lives just through his, um, the skill that he had, uh, that he had learned. So um, yeah, I think kind of early on, I was like driven towards, I want to be a doctor. I want to make a difference in people's lives. I want to take care of people in that way. And uh and so I kind of had my mindset going into That's college, great. I think, which which made it easier maybe starting out in college. I kind of knew what I wanted to do, but uh, it, yeah, it still was challenging, you know. So you became a pediatrician, but you don't do that in medical school. You have to, you know, you go through, as you know, you go through medical school mm-hmm. and, you, and you make a choice uh, uh, at some point, you know, about what residency you want to pursue. At what yeah. point did you decide, I want to do pediatrics? Um, I think probably by my third year of medical school, I knew once once uh, we started all the rotations, the third and fourth year, first two years is uh, more academic, sec- uh, last two years is all the rotations where you're experiencing every aspect of the, the uh, medical field and doing all these different clinical rotations. And 
I remember just when I started the pediatric training portion and primarily like in all the different types of outpatient settings, I liked that the best right away. Cause I, I was already kind of thinking like, what do I want to do? That's gonna, that I could do for 30 years. You know, yeah. where do I, how do I see myself moving into something? And it was just with kids. I was like, and my, both my parents were school teachers with kids. So that probably was part of an influence too. They always enjoyed, you know, working with kids through their careers. But I was just like, yeah, I could, if I'm going to do medicine for 30 years to be a pediatrician is going to be rewarding. And most of the pediatricians I met were really happy people. <laughs> you know, there weren't a lot of grumpy, uh, angry pediatricians. So, you'd, <laughs> uh, you know, so it was, it was a right away. I kind of felt at home there. Yeah. You know, and uh, there's still a lot of things you can do within pediatrics, but uh, yeah, that's where I felt like, okay, I can see myself doing this for a long time. Neat. So that leads me to, you know, you, you, my, one of the questions I like to ask when I talk with physicians is um, uh, when did you know you were a physician? When did you feel comfortable looking at yourself in the mirror and saying, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm actually a doctor. Yeah. I Was think, it? I think in, probably in the middle of residency where I actually felt like, wow, I'm, I'm, I'm a doctor. I'm doing this. I feel like I'm getting better at this. So I would say the first year for me, you're just trying to survive. Yeah. And then the second year you start coming into your element and you know, the balance of the art and the science of medicine, you start to feel that out, you know, as you progress through residency, because you're what you're watching so many of your preceptors do, do things so differently. One person tells you to do it this way. And then the other person tells you to do it that way and you start to figure it out yourself. There's an art here too. Yeah. And, uh, the, the human dimension dealing with people as your customers every day, uh, that are so different. So, so yeah, I, I would say, uh, second year, third year, you start to get into a groove and kind of start to develop your own style a little bit and uh, gets more fun. That's cool. So you did a couple of years at, at Fort Irwin. It sounds like it was a really good experience. And then you got, you got selected for a fellowship in adolescent mm -hmm. medicine. And so you shipped yeah. off to San Antonio, uh, to the San Antonio military medical center. Um, so mm -hmm. what does it mean to do a fellowship in adolescent medicine? So the fellowship and uh, it's an adolescent and young adult medicine fellowship, which was the army does it. The army trains people for three years. It's located in San Antonio, Texas, and it's a specialty off of pediatrics that really focuses on the 12 to 24 year old population. So we just think of it kind of like junior high, high school, college kids. And so then you, you become a pediatrician who specializes in essentially teenagers and young adults. And there's a different set of like risk behaviors that impact health for junior high, high school and college kids. Obviously we start talking about, you know, um, drugs and alcohol and sexual risk taking behaviors and, you know, much more of the behavioral realm. So it's, it's much more focused, I would say on like sexual health, sports medicine, behavioral mental health, all the things that happen to the body during puberty and things that happen along the way there. So yeah, a lot of, a lot of just kind of a, a specialty that I, I probably became interested in during my residency because for some reason, some of my favorite patients were like 16 or 17 years old. And I think I kind of felt like I could talk to the patient, not the mother, you know, whereas like with a two-year-old, you're just talking to the parents. With the 16-year-old, you get to talk to the 16-year-old 
and they're making decisions and you're trying to influence the health of a young person. Um, and that was, that was to build a relationship with the patient who's uh, high school or college age was to me, was much more rewarding. Mm-hmm. And then also during my time at Fort Irwin, I got, I was also a flight surgeon down there. The army sent me to the flight surgeon school. And as a flight surgeon, not only was I doing pediatrics down there, but I was also half time taking care of soldiers. And then I realized as an army doctor, my ultimate purpose is to take care of soldiers in uniform. Right. And so I was just like, you know what, I'm, I'm learning to be a really good pediatrician, but I need to be better at taking care of soldiers who are young adults, mostly half of, half of the uh, U.S. Army is under the age of 25 years old. And so I said, well, this is probably a perfect fit then. I, I already like the older kids. I want to be a better Army doctor. I need to take care of soldiers. You know, they're mostly young adults. So let me do it. was just To me, it was a no-brainer. So I just applied for the fellowship. And uh, it's not a fellowship that a lot of people want to do. You know, I think most pediatricians, interestingly, most pediatricians don't want to uh, take care of teenagers. And so a lot of pediatricians uh, stop seeing patients around age 12. Um, okay. And if, if there's an adolescent doctor around, they'll, the adolescent doctor will pick up the over 12 kids. So, um, but I actually really enjoyed it. Since June of 2019, you have been serving as the division surgeon for the 101st Airborne. So mm-hmm. tell us a little bit about the 101st Airborne. Well, the 101st Airborne is a famous unit. It's probably the most, one of the strongest divisions in the U.S. Army, definitely the most famous from uh, World War II. And uh, the Secretary of Defense in the past called it the tip of the spear. And now that I'm actually there, geez, I believe it. It is, uh, they're called the Screaming Eagles. um, And their, their entire mission is air assault. And basically what their, what air assault is, is a brigade sized element. Again, about 4,000, 5,000 people. Essentially uh, their mission is to air assault behind enemy lines to seize an objective. And I would say if you could just imagine the movie like Black Hawk Down where guys are coming in, Black Hawks and helicopters are flying in and people are uh, fast roping down on the helicopter. That's called, that's an air assault. Uh-huh. So an air assault, air assault can move people and air assault can move equipment. And so essentially you could, you could take people and equipment and insert them quickly behind enemy lines to seize key terrain or seize an objective and defeat the enemy. And that's what this, the 101st Airborne Division, that's their entire mission. So we've talked about battalions. We've talked about brigades. What's a division? A division is about 20,000 people. Wow. So it's about 20,000 soldiers and they have, let's see, six, uh, let's see, six brigades. So there's, there's a, there's three brigade combat teams. There's a sustainment brigade an aviation brigade. And then there's like a Devardi uh, kind of field artillery brigade. And so again, a, a, a brigade has seven battalions. A division has about six brigades. And so now as the division surgeon, uh, it's, it's again, the senior physician or you're kind of the team doctor for a division now. Just, so it's just uh, the next level up. And I'm supervising six physicians who are, you know, in charge of their physician assistants. So the pyramid just kind of got one level higher, essentially. So Wow, neat. Yeah, yeah. Talk, talk about the medical infrastructure and capabilities with, that are organic to a division. 
um, that okay. you are kind of overseeing and, and, and planning for. Yeah. So really our infrastructure is based on what the brigades have. So each brigade runs, essentially the army calls it roles of care. A battalion runs a role one aid station, which is more acute care, triage, stabilization. And then a brigade is responsible for running a role two level type care on the back. Again, this is all on the battlefield and role Role two is think of it more like a primary care clinic. They have radiology, uh, they have pharmacy, they have blood, um, they have all the primary care stuff. They can do emergency care, um, acute care, routine care. So uh, they also have behavioral health, uh, dentistry. Um, So the brigade is going to be uh, running role two capability across the world on whatever mission um, they're going to. That's what we did when we were uh, at Camp Beer in Kuwait. Um, and so when we're planning for missions, we plan through, we plan role one and role two capability. And uh, again, the division, at the, at the division surgeon level, we're just overseeing and integrating in all the different uh, roles of care uh, across the, the different brigades. And right now at the 101st, our, the brigades are really all over the world. It would only be like in a large scale combat operation that we would probably deploy as an entire division somewhere. Okay. So right now uh, people are still spread out. So that's got a, that's got to create some unique challenges um, yeah. in terms of planning and making sure that medical support is, is, is available to those units when they are scattered across the globe. It's challenging because we're essentially tracking all, all those uh, units as patients, you know, patients are essentially moving across the globe too. Cause if you think about it, the army is providing care, healthcare from the point of injury, wherever that might be all the way through the healthcare system back to the United States. So uh, the army calls it roles of care, role one, two, three, four, and five. Mm-hmm. And um, so we start out by providing healthcare at the point of injury, wherever that might be. Role one care is, is what the battalion would provide. That's mostly triage and acute care and emergency care and stabilization. Uh, role two care is, is bigger than that. You can still provide acute care and emergency care, but you have um, blood and x-ray and pharmacy and dentistry and behavioral health and primary care. And uh, you can even attach a, a forward surgical team to a role two to have some surgical capability. But then if the patient needs to move beyond that, then we move them back to role three, which is a big, bigger hospital and theater. And then role four and five is um, hospitals back in the in, uh, CONUS or in the continental United States. So it really as a division, as our units are all over the world, we're tracking kind of the healthcare system um, from, from way out there all the way back uh, to the United States. So it's, it's uh, I guess, integration. And, um, and oversight is, is part of the job too. So it's pretty interesting. So you've talked about role one, role two, you mentioned, um, and you mentioned Ford surgical teams. So there are actually a number of, and and then you, and then you mentioned role, you mentioned role three and four. Mm -hmm. I'm curious, what are your, what is your role as the division surgeon for, uh, interacting with these other um, mm-hmm. m- these, these, uh, higher level medical units yeah. that aren't, aren't organic to, um, the division, but get attached to the right. division or get assigned to provide support to 
division assets. Right. So for me, and as a division surgeon, there's a couple key folks that I'm interacting with at Fort Campbell, Kentucky, where the 101st resides out of. It's the hospital commander. So we have Blanchfield Army Community Hospital that is in place to dis- to support medical care for the division and all the family members that live on Fort Campbell. So I interact with, with that person a lot, uh, more of just uh, making sure that we have a good relationship. And as they work to support the division and I work for the division commander, you know, and, and, and our missions are happening all over the world. I, my job is to make sure that the hospital commander understands the priorities and the mission sets. So he's um, able to provide appropriate support. And then the other person that I probably interact with is the field hospital commander, who is um, another colonel who's in charge of the, what would be the role three uh, theater more the, um, or combat support hospital. So, uh, and there's, so you almost got like your, your, your community hospital that's just permanently assigned on the base. And then you have your uh, operational combat support hospital that's gonna move when the, if the division went forward or a division went forward, then the role three or the combat support hospital would move forward as well. Mm-hmm. So it's just, so that role three, is, there's also a role three stationed at Fort Campbell. And so, we interact with that uh, unit a lot for training purposes, I would say, and just to maintain the relationship there. So aside from obvious things like battle injuries that people tend to think of military medicine, like somebody's, uh, you know, the uh, one of your brigade goes out, goes out on a mission, somebody gets hurt mm-hmm. you know, and, and gets that, you know, the treatment uh, at the role one, role mm-hmm. two and so forth, and then maybe evacuated further back. Uh, what are the other major medical threats that you have to prepare for as a medical planner with deployed, me- in, in, you know, in a deployed environment? Mm-hmm. I would say a lot of infectious diseases, um, a lot of uh, environmental threats, just even from the drinking water. So uh, one of the officers on our team is an environmental science officer. And one of her roles is uh, vaccine health. That's she, she does everything vaccine related. And obviously we, the army has probably every, every vaccine that you could possibly have to protect people from infectious disease threats all over the world. And the U S army is also huge on helping develop new vaccines, such as, you know, to pr- protect from, from threats like Zika or Ebola, you know, all these other diseases that are a threat to the health of the force. So yeah, I would say, I would say vaccine health is a big part of what we do. And then just the environment. So anywhere from animals to drinking water, everywhere we go, uh, making, you know, we're, we always assume that we'll be moving into an austere uh, environment in some, you know, kind of part of the world. And so we always have environmental experts that are out there um, making sure that the environment is set up for safety to keep people healthy. Uh, For example, when we went out to a training site just at Fort Campbell, in the fall for two weeks for training, uh, they moved us to live in these little really kind of run down buildings that looked like they should be demolished, you know, but like that's where everyone was sleeping and the doors and windows were open. And what they found in those buildings were bats. There was bats living oh, in there. Yeah. So we had to call, we had to call out the environmental science people to come out and 
Um, apparently the, the bats were like a protected species, but they had to displace them and move them to a, you know, but bats can cause rabies. So then we're, right. we have all these people out there uh, sleeping and there's bats running around. <laughs> flying around. Um, so it's just, that was, to me, it was just a good example of like everywhere we go in an austere environment, we have to keep the environmental health piece, a huge part of what we do to keep people healthy. So I think, I think one of the, uh, you know, obviously having myself also been a medical service court officer. I mean, I think one of the things that was interesting to me as I learned the history of military medicine was kind of what you're talking about, which is the environmental threat and the control of disease, because what is it probably up through Vietnam, we had more Mm -hmm. casualties from disease and and non-battle injury, meaning environmental uh, uh, injuries and so forth. Oh yeah, absolutely. And even like, even other threats, um, I would say another huge threat is just the weather and probably probably one of the leading cause of training uh, deaths is heat injuries. So we just have, you know, even at Fort Campbell every year, a dozen people, uh, you know, have heat, major heat injuries just from doing road marches that are 12, 26 miles long in July and August. Uh, um, Yeah, but, but you're absolutely right. Just history time and time again has shown us that more people will be sick, injured or die um, in an austere environment, um, in combat, not from combat injuries, but from all the diseases, you know, the non-combat injuries that we're exposed to while we're out there. And we know that that'll be the same in the future as well, um, for sure. You, you also have a garrison mission, right? Meaning you have a field mission when you're out either deployed or when you're out on operations, but you also oversee a garrison mission, meaning when you're, when you're back, um, uh, uh, in garrison, as we refer to back, not deployed. Um, so talk a little bit about that. Yeah. So I would say in a medical team, you know, truly we're an integrated system of health and readiness across the entire, not only the entire world, but locally here at our installation, um, where soldiers are back home with their families and working and training and always preparing for the next major event. But, uh, 90% of all the medical care that we deliver is primary care. Okay. And so it's really important to have uh, primary care physicians in the army because the majority of where we take care of soldiers and promote their health and prevent injuries and get them ready uh, for their mission is in the primary care medical home environment. And so across the division here, we're planning for and executing and seeing about a hundred thousand appointments a year in our primary care medical homes. We have three different clinics across Fort Campbell that soldiers get their medical care. And I think it's important to understand that in our, in our readiness mission, as, as we're getting troops ready to deploy and um, train in support of our nation's defense, health is the foundation of readiness. You know, and that's, that's, this is where it's really important for everyone on the team to understand that it's the, it's the soldiers and the people that are getting the job done. They're the ones that are flying the helicopters and driving the trucks and moving the equipment and all the cool things the Army does. Um, it's, it's people that are doing it. And so health is the foundation of all of that. And um, the majority of what we see is musculoskeletal injuries. So sports medicine is happening okay. every day. That's probably That's probably about 70% of what we do is sports medicine. And that just makes sense with how physical 
how how important physically uh, to be physically fit is for soldiers in, in the army. Yeah, um, so you, a lot of musculoskeletal. Yeah. Yeah, you mentioned uh, you used the phrase um, that you were, or, or you used the metaphor that you're like the team doctor for the the hundred and first, and I really kind of yeah. I think that's a really apt uh, uh, metaphor. Mm-hmm. Because this uh, a lot of a lot of what they're they're doing is they're they're kind of professional athletes in a way, right? Absolutely, yeah. Um, they are soldiers are professional. I mean, they are like they're warrior athletes. They're professional athletes, and a lot of uh, similarities just to as if we were serving on a sports team. Except our mission is to defend our nation's freedom. Um, but these are you know eighteen to mostly twenty five, twenty six year old men and women that have very physically, you know, mentally demanding jobs. And we're here to take care of the team so the team can take care of the mission. And as you know, uh, medicine is a team sport. So there's, you know, everybody on the team in the medical community matters. And we're all truly working together. That primary care provider kind of leading the way for the unit, for the team. And uh, we're just working together to take care of these soldiers so that they can be on point for the nation and, and, and stay healthy. Right. Right. I mean, you, you were talking about, uh, we talked earlier about people, these young people are carrying, you know, going long road marches, carrying heavy packs. I mean, that's just a, that's a piece of the training that, that ordinary civilians just don't do in a day to day and even athletes, you know, don't do right. This is a a uniquely physically stressful field. Absolutely. And if you look at what the, what the mission of the hundred and first is, is the air assault and, um, the infantry and soldiers have to be able to road march many, many miles. And they do that in the training environment every day. And if you think about in the civilian world, uh, you know, I like to run and lots of people exercise every day for, for health and social activity. But um, most people, you know, would jump into a 5K or a 10K or a half marathon. Never would you put 50, 30, 70 pounds on your back and a pair of boots on and, and a full uniform and then have to go do that in all sorts of um, extreme austere environments. And so if you just look at what our soldiers are asked to do and they do it in a very courageous and mighty way, it makes sense that, you know, the musculoskeletal, the stress on the body is going to be high. And so we see a lot of that every day in the clinic. And I, I constantly tell our medical team too, you know, it's a team sport. The health of every single soldier matters. And, and we've got the best job in the world taking care of these guys that are, that are truly almost kind of like extreme athletes in a lot of ways. So, so you've been practicing medicine in one shape or another for 15 years now. Um, Mm -hmm. What's been the most gratifying uh, aspect of, of the practice of medicine for you? Um, Definitely, uh, definitely the taking care of people and, uh, just trying to make a difference in people's lives, I think is, is what uh, keeps driving me forward. Uh, even just the other day, I took care of a soldier who uh, was training for the best ranger competition and um, started to have lower leg pain. And so they called me about this guy because he's there's like you know nine people right now in the running for best ranger at Fort Campbell. And they won the entire competition for the Army last year. So it's a big thing. But I brought this guy right in you know, treated him like a professional athlete. We got him in the MRI machine within three days because we were concerned about a stress fracture in his tibia. You know, sure enough, he had a stress fracture in his tibia. 
And I wanted him to feel confident, number one, in what his diagnosis was that was preventing him from train, training and causing him pain. But then to, to give him a thumbs up, like, we're going to get you back into the, into your, back to your team, back to training, back to the fight within eight weeks. You know, that was our goal. So um, I, it's just making a difference for people. I think that does it for me and delivering amazing customer service. I think that's the other uh, thing that I really take a lot of pride in is I see medicine as part of what we need to do is be exceptional at customer service because we're dealing with people's livelihoods and their health and their well-being. And it's kind of like a life or death business in a lot of respects. Yeah, to me, that's the rewarding part. And uh, taking care of soldiers is special, too, because, you know, these guys are uh, defending our nation's freedom. And especially what I've learned from the infantry is is if someone's going to if someone's going to shed blood or sacrifice themselves for our country in defense of our nation, it's going to be these guys, you know, the infantry. And most of these guys are like 20 years old, you know, and they're doing some pretty like abnormal extreme things that most people would never do. Like road marching 12 miles with 70 pounds on their back. You know, it's like, who does that? Nobody. Oh, the infantry has to though. That's their mission, you know? So, and then they have overuse injuries and uh, stress fractures and, it's like, of course they will have that, you know? And so, but for me, I just, I take a lot of pride in trying to keep these guys healthy and fit and then get back to the fight and make sure that they can still do their jobs, I guess. So it's, yeah, it's rewarding. So we've talked a lot. uh, Josh has come up a number of times, your husband, who is also an army officer. He's a medical service Mm -hmm. corps officer. Um, Right. And, uh, and, and so I just, what I was, what I wanted to hear from you, and uh, maybe in, in, because we hear a lot about couples trying to have uh, meaningful careers in the civilian world, and and you know both both members of a couple trying to make that work. Mm-hmm. The military, uh, you know, uh, as we've been talking, you you moved all these times, and, and you mentioned some of these moves you've tried to, you know, you've you've had to try to make arrangements so that both of you could, you know, c- could continue to move your careers forward. What's uniquely challenging about having, uh, uh, being dual military and trying to maintain those, you know, professional, uh, careers moving forward? Yeah. Well, it's, uh, yeah, we've been doing this together for about 15 years and, uh, as a dual military couple. So we're both serving and, um, you know, trying to advance in our careers and, get more training and education and uh, we're both driven to make a difference and um, to, to be good leaders for other people, you know, first and foremost. Uh, and so it's been, there's definitely been sacrifices and challenges. Uh, we, we tell people that between the two of us, we've had five deployments, you know, Josh has had three deployments and I've had two deployments and I'll probably have another one. Uh, that's probably the hardest part I think is, the time apart uh, on those big, huge uh, trips. But we both understand that the army's purpose is to deploy, fight and win the nation's wars. And, and part of our job in uniform is to maintain our deployable status. And so I think uh, we just, we understand that and uh, understand that that's ultimately what it takes and why this is a sacrificial profession. So I think because we both understand the purpose greater than self aspect of serving in the U S army were, were 
we're both on board to try to give it 20 years, you know, and, and to be all in. There does come sacrifice, but I believe that we try to balance that really well um, with being very deliberate and intentional about our our time as a family uh, around those big events. So, for example, like any kind of temporary training or schools we have to take, we've done a lot of our training like distance learning. For example, the Army makes officers go to this intermediate level kind of leadership education called ILE or Command and General Staff College. And both Josh and I did that online distance learning intentionally so we wouldn't have to go away for another training. You know, mm-hmm. a lot of people go four months TDY or nine months here or there. And we were just like, nope, we'll just do it online because we don't want to take any time away from our family. Or, And then we have three kids. And so they're, uh, they're ages um, eight, 10 and 12. And so we kind of just tell them, you know, this is, this is our mission field right now, you know, to be in the army is like being on mission. It's a, it's a special uh, career path that we've chosen and just kind of built our life around. Uh, so it's a lifestyle choice, but uh, I feel like our family is, our family unit is very tight and very strong and it's brought us, I think it's made us a stronger um, family in a lot of different ways too versus versus torn us apart it's brought us together we're like well if we could survive going to Af- if, if we could survive mom going to afghanistan for five months then like what else could be harder than that you know right. we did it and uh but we we have a lot of family support too from grandmas and grandpas and brothers and sisters and friends and so i think we have a, a, a good community network and family network just around our immediate family that's that's helped us a lot we probably couldn't have done it without them as well so but yeah, it's, it's definitely challenging and, uh, and we just try to take it kind of one day at a time, one month at a time, you know. Well, let's, let's talk a little bit about leadership. Okay. What would you say is your leadership philosophy? You know what I've, I've been studying a lot and I think this is something that's been in, been in my mind and my heart and my, and kind of just how I operate for a long time is just servant leadership. And so I think it goes back to just understanding that I'm, that I'm in like a dual service profession as an army officer and as a physician, um, you know, I'm in, I'm in a profession of service as a physician. I see myself as a servant uh, for other people to enable their health. And so, yeah, so I would say servant leadership to me is the only kind of leadership that I'm interested in. And I don't know if I always get it right, but uh I, I see myself as a servant leader. So my job is to serve the mission, serve the organization, serve the people and enable their success through coaching, mentoring. The army has a slogan called mission first people always. Mm-hmm. And I learned that when I was in ROTC. And I think I've just lived by that, you know, where we're here for the mission, but it's always about the people. And, um, every team I've been on, I just, I really try to put people first and take care of my team and enable my team's success. So empower them, really, uh, help them clearly see like the mission, the vision, the goals of the team and the organization and steer people in that direction. Um, but, but I, I, I do everything I possibly can to empower the people on my team to reach their highest potential. Is there somebody so, you learned that from in particular or saw? I mean, you mentioned, uh, so you mentioned you heard, you know, yeah. uh, you hear everybody who goes to ROTC learns the 
you know, mission first people always kind of phrase, but I mean, did you see somebody that really embodied that or did you learn that from somebody? Did you have a chance to see a leader who really embodied it and executed it? I would say I've seen a couple leaders execute it and I, I probably didn't realize like that they were, but I was just like, there's been a couple people I've worked for that have just really stood out in their leadership. Like, like I totally look up to them and I look at their leadership and, and I'm just like, I want to be like them. You know, how do I, how do I be like a leader like them? Mm -hmm. And I would say, uh, one of the folks was when I was in residency, uh, we had a doctor named Dr. Pentel and he was our program director in residency. And he was just like this amazing leader. And, and I look back now and I'm like, he was definitely a servant leader. Uh, I had another leader in ROTC, Jim Craig, who's now, I think he's a professor at the university of uh, Missouri, St. Louis. Um, he's retired from the army, but I look back now at his leadership as one of the best leaders I worked for. And he was, a, he was definitely a servant leader. And then I, uh, one of my brigade commanders out of Fort Riley, Colonel Tim Hayden, he was like an amazing leader who totally empowered, you know, the medical team to hit home runs, uh, backed us up. He was humble. He was, you know, results uh, focused at the same time, but just totally humble and totally kind and like the nicest guy you've ever met at the same time, but expected high results at the same time. And, mm-hmm. and I look back at my time working for him and I'm like, it was obvious he was a servant leader too. A big influence for me serving in the army has, has probably been my family. I, I had mentioned my dad, you know, retired from the army as a Lieutenant Colonel. He served in Vietnam. Um, my brother is an army orthopedic surgeon. He was a prior infantry uh, officer, ranger, switched over, went into medicine. He's a huge servant leader. My sister uh, was an army doctor for about 10 years, also a servant leader. My other brother served in the field artillery, stationed at Fort Sill, Oklahoma for uh, many years. Went to, everybody in my family has deployed to Iraq or Afghanistan, service to our country. So you know, without taking anyone for granted, everyone has, everyone around me in my life has served our country. And most importantly, my husband, Josh has, you know, every step of the way, every day we're in this together. He's, he's been a helicopter pilot. He's uh, been there for soldiers at the point of injury and he's continued in the army very successfully too. And so it's like the best people I worked for have been servant leaders and I've studied servant leadership a lot too. Um, I've also studied it to just, you know, it, it it's the humility plus the ambition. There's a combination of, there's got to be a combination of humility, ambition. Mm-hmm. And another way, way to look at it is like, you know, taking care of people, but expecting high performance. If you're, if you're too far, uh, only focusing on people, but you don't care about results or too focused on results, but you kind of, you know, trample over people. There's got to be this balance between like love, essentially you love your people and you're, you want to win at the same time. You know, mm-hmm. you want, you're driven to win, but you have to love your people because your people will not help you win if they don't think that you care about them um, or love them, you right. know? And so that's just the healthiest combination right there. But, but yeah, I think I strive to be a servant leader and I don't really see leadership in any other way other than that. And I, I've seen, great results from that, you know, and again, it's, it's, it's this fine balance and it's easy to 
get too far in one direction or another. And I think where that that's where that constant self-awareness and self-reflection has to keep entering the equation. It's this never-ending journey of self-reflection and striving to be a servant leader. Um, and it's and it's not easy. You know, it's there's challenges all along the way with that. Um, so I know you and Josh both do a lot of reading. You've talked uh, about leadership. Is there a book that you would recommend to early careers, young officers or young young folks who are just launching their careers in, in leadership roles in healthcare? Is there something you would, rec- a book you would recommend? Yeah, I, I think one of my favorite books has been um, Start With Why by S- Simon Sinek. Oh, very good. And I read that book probably back in 2010 or something. But um, yeah, that book, I would recommend it to every leader just because, uh, you know, it's important to understand why you do what you do. I think a lot of times uh, when you're starting out in anything, you you know what to do and how to do it. But if you don't understand why you're doing it, you know, the deeper purpose above self. And um, when things get hard, for me, at least when things have gotten challenging or things have gotten hard, I always come back to my purpose. Like, why am I doing this? And, and I think that's kept me going in the army. You know, why, why am I still wearing this uniform? I could go be a doctor anywhere and just kind of call it quits in the army, but it all comes back to the purpose greater than self. I'm here to help defend our nation's freedom and take care of, of the war fighters and the soldiers and their families who are the ones doing the hard work to defend our nation's freedom so it's just his message in that book, I think, kind of keeps you going um, and helps you develop that passion for for why, you know, why medicine, why be a physician, uh, you know, because being a physician is is not easy. It's, it's a hard job. And uh, I always tell people, too, you know, medicine is one of those professions where there's no finish line because people are always going to get sick. People are always going to get injured. And, um, you can, you never cross the finish line in medicine. It's just this long journey, this lifelong journey that you just kind of keep going and you, and it's, you have to have endurance. And when things get hard, I think to come back to your bigger purpose keeps you going. Endurance seems to be a theme in your life, starting all the way back with cross country up till, uh... I think so too. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Oh yeah. So, so in conclusion, um, for a young person who's thinking about a career, maybe in healthcare. Why should they uh-huh. think about military medicine? Well, military medicine is unique. Um, it's a it's a service oriented oriented profession. You're in a you're a, in a way you're a dual servant because you're serving your country as an army officer or a military officer, and you're serving patients as a healthcare professional. Um, it uh, it's a way to get a free education, you know, <laughs> at, at, the, at the heart of it right there is a lot yeah. of people go into the military because it's uh, you'll come out of medical school or dental school or whatever kind of professional school debt free or I mean, uh, yeah, with no debt. So I, I graduated medical school kind of owing zero dollars, you know, and, and if anything, they they give you a bonus and you they give you a stipend. So it's a job you're making money going through medical school there. And uh also, another reason people can think about going into military medicine is, especially if you have a sense of adventure or like to travel, is that um, the military is all over the world. And so it's truly, 
a healthcare mission that exists in every single part of the world, in every continent. Um, we're training and working and stationed in so many different countries, um, and it's truly a global healthcare mission. I think that's another reason why I've really stayed with it and appreciated um, being in the military for a while is just as you get to work in so many different places. Another another reason why um, military medicine is a great profession too is just we have the best patient population in the world. So we're taking care of our nation's finest. We're taking care of young men and women, families who are all serving our country. And that, that in itself is just such a great honor. But yeah, I would just say ultimately it's a, if you're looking to go into a profession of service, there's no better way to then spend a little time uh, serving our country in the military. There's so many people that um, come in and, and do their three years or their four years or five years and they serve their country and then they step aside and they go on and they serve their community and um, in so many other ways. And, uh, but I, I think one thing, um, maybe that's just important for young people to know too, is our soldiers essentially are laying down their life for our nation's freedom. And every single one of us who's volunteered to raise our right hand in support of our nation's freedom, there's an element of sacrifice there that sometimes we take for granted or we don't think about. But um, one, of the, one of the reasons why I think I've stayed in the Army was when I first started back at uh, Madigan in my, my residency and I was a brand new Army officer, I had heard of a soldier who had um, died during combat and um, had received the Medal of Honor. And that was a, a guy named Specialist Ross McGinnis from Pennsylvania, a 19-year-old young man, had everything going for him, but was in a combat environment where, you know, things were not going well and a grenade was thrown and he was with his team. And he, in a, in a split second, decided to use his body to cover the grenade to protect uh, everybody else on his team. And, um, he ended up receiving the Medal of Honor for that in the early 2000s. And uh, when we were stationed in Washington, D.C., uh, my husband and I, and we took our kids, and many times I just went by myself, but we would go to visit him at his gravesite in Arlington and just stand there because, it, you know, it's just unfathomable and uh, incredible that a 19-year-old person would do that for our country and for his brothers in arms. And um, as I continue to serve soldiers in the Army, many of them who are 19 years old, I, I always think about, I always think about Ross and I always think about, gosh, it's such an honor to take care of these young men and women. Uh, we've got the best patient population in the world um, because I just realized what soldiers, uh, their purpose truly is, you know, in defense of our nation and how incredible that is and how dangerous that can be and how brave they have to be in just doing their job. So it's, it's a real honor just to take care of soldiers. Yeah, I, I think it's just maybe one of the greatest things that we'll do in our lifetimes. You know, whether you serve four years or 20 years, it's just, uh, it's, it's an honorable uh, path to take for a little while. And I think you realize that, you realize that more as you get to the end of it and you can yeah. look back and, and it's not always easy and there's a lot of sacrifice, but uh, it's it's a remarkable uh, place to spend some of our time for a while serving. Yeah. 
Well, thank you so much for your time today, Amy. It's been great catching up again and, and hearing, hearing, uh, hearing about your adventure since we last talked back in San Antonio. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. You've been listening to the Health Leader Forge, a joint production of the College of Health and Human Services at the University of New Hampshire and the Northern New England Association of Healthcare Executives. Please go to our website, healthleaderforge.org, for more information or to leave comments about today's podcast. Look for Health Leader Forge podcasts on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and other podcast distribution sites. Thanks for being a part of the Health Leader Forge community, and we'll talk with you again soon.